following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Okay, now flip back to Deuteronomy. There's nothing better than faithful saints flipping pages of Scripture. It's a good thing. I know some of you use digital Bibles, if there is such a thing. Um, But I think there's something to be said about having an actual Bible. Uh, I like my Bible, and I hope you like yours too. And if you don't, get a new one. (laughs) That's funny. Anyway. All right, see where we're at. Man, Bethany was right. We're working with an interesting set of people this morning. <laughs> Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, and we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy 17 and 18. I will not read all of Deuteronomy 17 and 18 to you, um, but uh, I don't want you to turn there. But there's an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 22. In 2 Kings 22, a king named Josiah ruled over the kingdom of Judah. And Josiah was known for his great wisdom and his love for the Lord. If you study 1 and 2 Kings, you will see that Israel, first of all, wanted a king. And God didn't want them to have a king. And so, uh, essentially, uh, God says, I don't think this is a good idea. And they said, but we want to be like everybody else. And he says, if you really want a king, then uh, I'll give you a king. But it won't be the, the right king for you. There's only one king that will be good for you, and that's Jesus, who would come later down the road. And so in First and Second Kings, you're going to see all of these kings who either did what was right in, in the eyes of the Lord, and the people flourished, or they did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord, and there was judgment and condemnation. And Josiah is one of these uh, rulers or kings who has a lot of wisdom, and he loves the Lord. He wants to do what the Lord uh, has him to do. He wants to lead people well in accordance with God's laws. So one day they're renovating the temple, and in that renovation, a scroll is found, and it's believed that that scroll is the book of Deuteronomy. And as they find Deuteronomy, uh, really, Josiah is kind of cut to the heart, and he tears his clothes. You ever been reading your Bible, and all of a sudden, like, you're so cut to the heart with a passage of Scripture, you just rip your shirt open? Did that happen to you? If that happened to you, like, that's kind of (laughs) awesome. And Josiah reads the, the book of the law, all of this, this stuff from Moses, and he's astounded about it. He's, he's, he's dumbfounded. He's cut to the heart, and he realizes all his knowledge is from God, and he realizes that the laws of God were just as relevant to the people who were present in his day as they were to the people who were present in Deuteronomy. And so what he does is he brings these kind of laws of God back to life, and he works tirelessly to teach the people. And he says, if we're obedient to what God says, we'll, we'll flourish. And that's what we want to do when we study Deuteronomy. We want to be like Josiah. We want to rediscover the teachings. My whole goal is that one of you just tears his shirt open today, all right? Preferably a guy. <laughs> It's also really hot in here today. <laughs> we want to become like, like Christ. We want to walk in his ways. And what were the ways that Christ walked? Well, 
I think it's interesting because Christ constantly follows the biblical text. But what is Jesus' Bible? Jesus' Bible is the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So we cannot abandon the Old Testament. I'm actually falling in love with the Old Testament more and more as I see how Jesus walked in discipline. And he walked in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord as a faithful servant. And we can do that too as well. So Deuteronomy 17 and 18 are two traits of a faithful servant of God. What does it look like to be a faithful servant of God? Well, in chapter 17, we see the first trait is one who lives according to God's word. The first trait as a faithful servant of God is to live according to God's word. Now, we're assuming here that everybody is a believer. And I know that some people who are here in in this service or listening online might not know who God is based off a relationship with Christ through faith and trust to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we would say that the first step for somebody who's a faithful servant needs to be, this is like point zero, if you will, one who trusts Christ as Lord and Savior. He is the Messiah. His blood covers our sins. Now, knowing that and believing that, we're putting our faith in that, that Christ's blood covers our sin, we realize that God wrote us a book. And in that book, we have 66 little books that show us how we are to live. Now, Deuteronomy 17 is kind of not fair, okay? And, And what I mean by that is you have to go back to Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 through 22, to get Deuteronomy 17. And it's there that God appointed judges from Israelite tribes to make sure that Israel's worship would be pure in the promised land. Why did he do that? Well, it's easy because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And if we just let people worship how they want to worship, it would not be pure and it would not be accordance with God's ways. And you say, do you have any examples? I have multiple examples about the American church doing this today, but I'm not going to dive into any of those. The judges... It says in 16, verse 19, big numbers are going to be the chapters, small numbers are going to be the verses, that these judges were not to pervert justice, they were to show no partiality, and they were to take no bribes. They were simply to follow what is just according to the Lord. And while Israelites had priests, this would, or excuse me, while Israel had priests, this judge or judges would help if the priest failed. It's kind of like, John, why we have associate pastors, right? If Jordan goes south, you got John, okay? And if John goes south, well, Lord be with you, all right? Now, there's a big problem that's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and this is pagan Canaanite worship. There's these things called totems there that were man-made objects believed to have spiritual significance, Now, you look at that and you think to yourself, how could that be? Like, how are those things possible? Well, we do this all the time. We think that that cross on the wall has more spiritual significance than this word that's in our hand. Okay, so you got to be careful with some of these things that we make to be greater than they really are. Now, the Canaanites, verse 17, verse 1, it says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which has any blemish or defect, for it's an abomination to the Lord. And what essentially God's saying is, I don't want you to bring anything with a, with a defect because it is like the Asherite poles of Canaan. Or it is like the sacred stones that Canaan had. They were impure, symbolic symbols of gods or goddesses that wasn't the true God. 
And the Israelites were not to bring these things or anything like them even remotely close to the places of worship. So what are we getting at here? Offering less than perfect sacrifices is a failure to recognize God as the ultimate provider and the perfect God that he is. Let me say it a little bit different way. God does not want your leftovers. God does not want the 20% that you have left at the end of the day. God wants your first fruits. He wants you to seek Him first thing in the morning. He wants you to praise Him before you eat your food. He wants you to praise Him before you discipline your kids. Before you do anything, you should approach the Lord and you should give Him the first perfect sacrifice that you have. Now, I love, I love the Lord because what he does is he outlines forbidden worship and he says, don't act like this. <laughs> he says, don't act like this. And the first thing that we just read was there were pagan offerings or sacrifices that had blemishes or defects. And he says, Israel, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to give us anything, any sacrifice that has a blemish or defect because that type of sacrifice is, worth, is, excuse me, is worthless. They are, the Bible calls them, an abomination. They're an abomination to the Lord. They rob God of his honor. Now, in Second Samuel, it's really interesting. Uh, King David, right? You guys know him. He illustrates this point. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, David was offering to buy a threshing floor. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't know where that's at. Actually, you do know where that's at. The threshing floor that David buys in 2 Samuel is the Temple Mount now. You know that little golden dome that you have over in Israel? You guys have seen pictures of that or whatever. That's the threshing floor that David bought. And what was happening is, essentially, before he bought it, uh, there was a man, his name was Arana, and he essentially says, you can have it. And David's like, no, that's not how it works. I, I, want, to, I want to buy it. Let me, let, me just, let me just buy that threshing floor. And he's like, okay, you know, whatever. And in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, listen to what David says. I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. When we sacrifice to the Lord, it costs us something. It hurts a little bit. When we sacrifice to God, we look at it and we realize that our proper sacrifice is so important to him. It costs us something. It costs us our time. It costs us our talents. It costs us everything, if you want to be honest. David knew that if it didn't cost something, it wasn't really a sacrifice. Now look at verse 3 through 7. Proper sacrifices were so important to God that judges were to make sure false worshipers were executed after proper investigation happened. It says by two or three witnesses. Why? Well, these improper acts of worship threatens Israel's existence as a nation as they honored inanimate objects over the living God. And so, essentially, God's like, it's so important, look at verse 7, that you purge the evil from your midst. Now, if you go back just a few verses in verse 6, it says, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death, and a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. If you jump to Jesus in the New Testament where the woman is caught in adultery, we would ask, where is her accuser in that crowd? It's kind of interesting that, she, that, that he's not there because he would need to be there according to Deuteronomy law. And then he says, you purge the evil 
from your midst. So we jump from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And we would say, how do we purge the evil from our midst? Well, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have unrepented sin after service today, we are going to execute you in the foyer. Just make sure you're listening. Everybody's like comfortable with that? You guys are good with that? Like, no, I don't, whoa, like, if you're new here, you're like, I think I picked the wrong church, (laughs) okay? Well, we don't execute those who worship improperly. We do take unrepentant sin very, very seriously, right? And we have covenant membership at our church. When you enter into a covenant with us, you say, I believe what you believe, and I want to be held accountable, and We look at this and we would say, if you have unrepentant or known sin and you're not taking that seriously, then we don't know if this is going to be a good place for you to worship because we want to become more and more like Christ. We want to cast off those sins. And that's why we hold each other accountable, spur one another on. We look at this and we realize that we want to give our first fruits our best, and in reprimand, we would hope to see repentance and regain fellowship. We would hope that people are calling people out, right? That's important for us to do. Now, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it, right? Be careful, right? If you're leaving today and you're like, oh man, I'm so glad Pastor Jordan said that because you look across the aisle and you're thinking, I can't wait to tell her her sins, or I can't wait to tell him his sins, okay? Just remember, when you got one finger pointing at somebody else, there's three pointing back at you and one giving the thumbs up. Okay, to be very careful with that. I want to live according to God's word, giving God my all, my best, letting my brothers and sisters hold me accountable, making sure that they are giving, that we're all giving our best. Now, when we get to that, we look at it and we say, okay, God, like, I've already said this, you know, we've gone through this, we're doing this Matthew 18 thing. What do we do if that person still fails to be repentant? Well, look at verse 8. It says, if any case arises requiring decisions between one kind of homicide and another, and then he keeps going on, he says, you shall, verse 9, come to the Levitical priests. And he says, you should follow due process. These cases were so serious that if a judge felt that a case was too difficult to decide, he would take it to what is called the central tribunal. Look at verse 9. It says, in that Levitical priest and to the judge who is in the office in those days, you shall consult them and they shall declare to you the decision. There was systems and structure and order even back then that people were to follow and you were to follow that due process. As we see those leaders were put into these positions of authority, they believed that they were going to do what was honoring to the Lord. Any decision that the central tribunal made was to be final and to rebel against it would be considered a a contempt of court, a capital offense. Now, in today's society, we believe that people are put into positions of power, right? Because the Lord has put them in those places and we follow due process. It's the same thing. So sometimes you have to give it over to the Lord and let him be the judge. That's not fair. You know, on this side of, of eternity, it's not. There's some things that are just not fair, and there's some things that God is just going to have to handle in his time and in his ways. And then we look at this and we go, well, what do we do if, if the courts are contempt? What do we do if the politicians are crooked and they're backwards? What do we do about that? If God raised them up, God can take them down, right? 
So that's where prayer comes in. When we can't lift ourselves, we let God do the heavy lifting. It's funny how many people talk about courts and judges being so corrupt, but few of them pray for them. Or few of them contact them, right? And, and tell them, like, this is what's going on. God will deal with unrighteous ones in his time, in his ways. And so we follow leadership until leadership tells us to go against the word of God. Then we say, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. We live according to God's word, giving God our best, making sure we're holding each other accountable, following due process, and then, watch this, in verse 14, we follow the right king. It is debatable if God wanted Israel to have an earthly king. I would say he didn't. Regardless, God knew that Israel would ask for one. Uh, They kind of demanded one. And so look at verse 15. After he says in verse 12, you shall purge the evil again from you, verse 15 says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Oops. This king is going to have, verse 16, some military power, but not too much. This king is going to have one wife and certain comforts, but not too much. He's going to have some personal wealth, verse 17, but not too much. And this king was to, now I love verse 18. Listen to this, church. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. He was to dictate the law, not in his own words, word for word, for himself, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it some of the days of his life. You guys got to pay attention. All of the days of his life. He doesn't get to pick and choose. Oh, it's Saturday. I get a day off. Nope. All the days of his life. Ah, but I worked really hard today. Nope. Got to do it. And he reads it for a specific purpose. He shall do these things to learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and statutes and doing them. What? And that, verse 20, his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. It will keep him humble. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Luther said it like this. He said, I'd rather live in hell with the Bible than to live in paradise without one. It's also been said, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. We worship the Lord and him alone as he has given us everything that we need outlined in his word, but it's the one book that we shelf all the time. We constantly put this book aside. We live as believers according to God's word. And if you don't know God's word, then you study it and you read it as much as you possibly can. Why? Because it keeps you from sin. If you find yourself in a situation where you are struggling with sin, just let me, tell, just let me be straightforward and honest with you. It's not in pills. It's not in psychiatrists. It's not in counselors. Those are good. But if they're not pointing you back to the word of God, then you need to find another place to populate. Because we believe with 
everything that we have that God's word keeps us from sin. And the majority of people who sin are the people who refrain from God's word. We'll fail all the time in matters of power, pleasure, and money if we wander from God's word. Now, I can't help but think about this. Imagine if every believer read the word of God every day of their life, learned to fear him by keeping all the words of his law and the statutes by doing them. Do any of you have a personal copy of God's word that you have dictated from beginning to end? I was so cut to the heart, I tore my clothes the other day. That's amazing. I could not get past that part of scripture because here's where this really kind of resonates with me. We look at this and we realize that this is the king who sits on the throne. But what does God say about us when we enter into a relationship with him? First Peter, all of the apostles say that you are God's children. You are sons and daughters of the most high. That makes you princes and princesses. Makes you royalty. What if we read so diligently the scriptures and we saw them as a powerful and probable means to keep us humble and in check? James tells us this in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. All right, that's enough of that. Moving into 18. So we have the word of God. Then watch what happens. Then we use the word of God for discernment. Now, I've started thinking about this a lot lately. I listen to people give me advice and their opinions on things, and I ask them all the time. I'm like, where'd you get that from? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I heard it somewhere. But it's amazing how many people give God's word for discernment and are convicted to it. In verse 1 through 9, the Levites, this is the tribe of Levite, were paid ministers for Israel. They had no inheritance or land. They were supported by gifts and offerings of God's people. The Levites received food via portions of animals that were sacrificed to the Lord. In verse, uh, uh, chapter 18, verse 3, it says, they were given shoulders, cheeks, and the stomach. <laughs> okay, those must have been the good parts. They were also given grain, new wine from oil, and the first fleece of the Lord's, or the people's, excuse me, the people's sheep in verse 4. Paul talks about this in New Testament regarding paid pastoral staff in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And these Levites and the Old Testament priests and judges were to make sure the Israelites didn't participate in certain Canaanite abominable practices. Like what? Well, this is kind of a no-duh, but it's really not at the same time. First thing is, these people... We're using God's word to discern how children should be sacrificed. Should they be given over to the Lord, like it says in verse 20 of chapter 17, so that the children in Israel may prosper by God's word? Because what was happening in the time period was people were sacrificing their children on the idols of adultery. Now, the God Molech comes into play here a little bit, and it's interesting. The God Molech is like this little carved image, and he had two hands that were like this. And what they would do is they would put this uh, god Molech into a fire and they would heat these hands up red hot and people would bring their children and they would put them on the, the hands and they would kill them that way. They'd sacrifice them. And you look at that and you say, there's no way that that would happen. There's no way that that would happen in today's society. Uh, yeah, it happens every single day in regards to abortion. 
People sacrifice their children on the altar of abortion every single day in hopes that they will be financially successful and that they'll, be, they'll, they'll do okay. God, this is not a good time for me to get pregnant. Well, maybe you should have thought that through. And some of you guys look at it and you say, that's not fair because sometimes a crime was committed beforehand. A life is a life. God loves life. So there's a sacrifice that is going on and the priests and the Levites and the judges were saying, no, not us, not our people. We give our children over to the Lord because his ways are just. And then number two, the people weren't supposed to practice witchcraft. Uh, Verse 10, it was people who practiced divination or they divided, they were false prophets. They determined the will of God by interpreting things like the stars and think about it like astrology today. Witchcraft ties into the third thing, which is sorcery or people who were charmers or medians or inquired of the dead. This was an attempt to control people and circumstances through power given by evil spirits. Now, stay with me here for a second. These people supposedly told the future based off signs such as movements of bird or fire or rain. One who casts out spells is literally one who ties knots, binds the people together. God's not like that. This is really, really big in charismatic circles and Pentecostal circles today. And this is huge. People look at it and they say, oh, I want, I want, let me prophesy over your life. Let me tell you things that are, that, that are a mystery in God's word as if there's something that, that is hidden in this book that you cannot understand. It's all clear in the text. And you're allowed to study this text. You're allowed to look at this and and you get the freedom when you're a believer to say, I wonder if Pastor Jordan was right about what he said. And I would say, search and make sure that we are correct. Absolutely. There was a study done in 1989. I know that's so long ago. I was seven. Do the math. He's really that young? Yeah, he is. In that study, the proportion of adults who say they have been in touch with the dead has risen from 27 to 42% during the last 11 years. I don't like statistics, but this is interesting. That means close to 20 million Americans in 1989 reported mystical experiences. How big do you think that is now? Like, people love that stuff. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He loves to show himself off. And it says these abominable practices were one reason God used Israel to destroy the Canaanites. Israelites were never to get involved in those things. They were to avoid them and to be blameless. Jordan, what are you saying? In short, you should have nothing to do with sinful darkness or the dark things of this world. Because here's what's happening in our society today. The devil's making dark things look a little brighter when in reality they're a little darker. And what we do is we just, we just kind of look at it and we just say, that's not that bad, right? I mean, I mean, if my neighbor watches that, I could watch that, right? Like, it's not that bad. It is that bad. The faucet is dripping. Now, in verse 15, God knew the Israelites couldn't overcome these evils on their own. Praise the Lord. We can't do that, right? So he promised to raise up a prophet among the nations. Look at verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like, uh, like me from among you. This is Moses talking. From your brothers, it is him you shall listen. All of the prophets in the Old Testament pointed to the greatest prophet, which is Jesus. They all paved the road for him. 
Moses said he will speak in God's name. He'll deliver his message to the people. Verse 23 through 27 says, Having the entirety of Scripture, we know that there's this line of prophets who followed Moses to speak to the Israelites as a mediator. You need a mediator when it comes to your relationship with God. It's not a person in regards to a sinful person. It's in regards to a perfect prophet, priest, and king. His name is Jesus. Each of these prophets raised up was an Israelite that pointed to a greater prophet than them, a Messiah who be their king. This ultimate prophet, like Moses, was Jesus, the one who spoke God's word, provides deliverance for his people. During the first century, official leaders of Judaism were still looking for the fulfillment of Moses' prediction. And in John chapter 1, verse 21, all the way up to Acts chapter 3, Peter says, you can stop your search because Jesus is here. He is your mediator. You trust Christ. It always points back to Christ. Now you get all these people in the Bible, and Paul talks about this, and Apollos talks about this, and you say, who am I supposed to follow? Should I follow this person, or should I follow this person? You follow the person who points you back to Jesus. I am so glad that you come here every single week, and that we get a chance to worship together. I love that. But if I'm not pointing you to Jesus, you got to stop listening to me. If I'm pointing you to some mysticism, if I'm pointing you to some, oh, I got some secrets that you guys have no idea about, then you got to get rid of me. It's got to always be about Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, how do I tell? Is there a way to tell to determine whether a prophet was speaking God's words or not? Yeah, and the same is true today because some people are going to prophesy some stuff in your life and you've got to have some sort of way to figure it out. Verse 20 says, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of any other gods, that same prophet shall die. And he says, how will we know the word that the Lord has spoken? Is there a way to tell? And he says, yeah, absolutely. First thing is, that message has to be in accordance with God's word. You should walk away this morning feeling so encouraged because we have been from uh, Corinthians to Deuteronomy all the way to 2 Kings. Isn't that amazing? We're kind of showing you like the fullness of the scripture. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We're looking at it. We're saying, hey, look to God's word. Look to God's word. Look what God's word says. A prophet's message has to be in accordance with God's word. If he spoke in the name of or on behalf of any other gods, he contradicted God's revealed word, he gets to die. Now, uh, some Old Testament things I wish were still in existence. That's just me being real with you. But then second, watch this, his prophecy must come true. What? If neither of these conditions was met, then no matter how powerful would-be prophets seemed to be, people weren't to be afraid of him or anything predicted against him. Now, here, this is where the whole church is where the rubber meets the road. You ready for this? There are people in your life, and there are things that you watch and that you listen to, that you need to speak into and say, I'm not afraid of you, and either shut it off or turn it down. You look at those things and say, listen, I am not afraid of you because God's word has come true for generation to generation to generation. God will raise up leaders who will guide and protect his people. It is our responsibility to be discerning and faithful to God's word. And so I have to constantly say, Lord, give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. 
Because there's so many people who come up and they're like really, really good at what they say and they seem so like appealing, right? Have you ever gotten to somebody and it's, it's like when you get in a situation and, and you rabbit trail on an ad on social media and before you know it, you're buying a toaster oven, you don't even need a toaster oven. And you're like, man, that man was so persuasive. Do not fear sending that thing back. It says right in the end of the passage in verse 22, you need not be afraid of him. Church, some of us are so afraid to take a stance for the living God because the persuasiveness of a secular society. And in Deuteronomy 17, it's a call for faithfulness and obedience to God's commands. As Denny said this morning, as he read our call to worship verse, it's obedience. There's a reminder of the importance of seeking the Lord with all of our heart, following his ways. But we also know that in our human weakness, we're prone to wander. And so thank you, Lord, that you give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is a convictor and a guide and a teacher and disciplines us for our good. Welcome the discipline of God. It's a good thing. Because when you sacrifice to him, it costs you something. And when it costs you something, you should praise the Lord for that. Thank God we live on this side of the Old Testament. Have a Savior who is greater than the prophets of old, who has come to reveal God's love and grace in a new and powerful way. Now, why don't you jump over to the book of Hebrews? Hebrews is on the right-hand side of your Bible. And I have written in Hebrews, see Deuteronomy. In Hebrews, it reminds us that God has spoken. Let me just read this to you as we close. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, this is so good. I love to hear your pages turning. Where did he say? What did he say? Hebrews? Where's Hebrews? I can't find it. There's a table of contents in your Bible for a reason. Long ago at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his what? By his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. And whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You do not have to be in control. Because God is in control. And after making purification for sins, he stays standing and wonders, is this going to work? That's not what the text says. It says he sat down. It is finished. Done. Completed at the right hand of the majesty of high, and having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. My note after that, see Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Easter's not over. We're just getting started. Every 
Sunday, we gather to celebrate the resurrection of our perfect prophet, our perfect priest, and our perfect king. And as we gather, we know that Jesus, our mediator, is interceding on our behalf for all of the things that are going on in our life. And we ask for your forgiveness for walking and wandering away from your word that has been entrusted to our care. We ask this week that in every trial and tribulation, we would keep our eyes fixated on Christ. That we would realize that we have access to the forgiveness and redemption that we so desperately need. We ask, God, that you would hold us fast to our faith in Christ in all of those situations and circumstances, and that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We would seek to follow your ways and realize just, well, that we hope the Israelites would have realized that your ways are better than our ways, and your thoughts are better than our thoughts. And maybe on this side of eternity, it's a little confusing, but it will all make sense someday. Restore us, with a renewed zeal and passion for your word, God. Create in our hearts a passion for Scripture, for it holds the keys that we need in order to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For those that don't know you, may they trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, that those that do know you, may we have a renewed joy and peace in the fact that you love us without end. God, we are so thankful for your word. Help us to be faithful servants as we go from this place. In your name, all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.